This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. John Green, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's a good time to be chatting. There's so many people listening to our podcast at the moment because we're, for those of us that live in Australia, there are some lockdown restrictions. So people love to find out with the podcast about authors, um, particularly Australian authors. So let me introduce you. John is a best-selling Australian writer of thrillers, including Born to Run and Nowhere Man. He worked in business and law for over 30 years before becoming a writer. He writes and commentates on business in publications, including The Age, The Australian and The Financial Times. John also works in publishing, having co-founded Pantera Press in 2008. His latest book, which is what we're talking about today, Double Deal, returns to the thrilling life of ex-spy Dr. Tori Swift. So, wow, there's a lot there. You're a busy man. Well, lots of people are busy. People like kind of thrive on doing lots of things and uh, have been lucky enough to have developed a life where I love all of them, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm not complaining, you know, no. it's fan- it's a fantastic situation. Lockdown, though, that is kind of difficult and I was looking forward to having a book launch for Double Deal shortly, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So I got myself, your, your readers won't be able to see this, but I got myself a face mask. Oh, wow. With the cover on it. Yeah, there you go. Oh, well, that's good promotional. I haven't seen that before, so that that could take off there, John. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I hope the book takes off. I've seen flags and all sorts of things, but I haven't seen a book cover mask. Tell me um, where your love for writing started. Go back to growing up and because you weren't, I mean, you really only started writing recently in your life. True. Talk to me about that. Uh, Well, I've always been a voracious reader. From We always had books in our home. We couldn't afford to buy them back then. So uh, I grew up in the back streets of King's Cross in Sydney and we had a fantastic uh, local library near uh, the El Alamein Fountain, if you know where that is. I know exactly where that is and And I love libraries as well. (laughs) Don't we all? Yeah. Uh, And so I would hot-foot it down there once a week and get a bunch of books and read them. And it really started for me an intense love of books, writing, fiction, nonfiction, and fueled a curiosity that has kind of been with me all through my life. And then uh, the first thing I remember writing was a play. I don't know how many pages it was. It was probably three pages or four pages when I was in primary school, and then as I grew up uh, and, you know, got into my professional career, 
I did a lot of writing. I would give lots of talks and speeches and I'd write articles for newspapers and all that kind of thing. But I always had this dream that I would write a novel, but I was constrained by the old adage that, you know, everybody has a novel in them and most people should keep it there. Mm. Uh, But I went to a leadership course and one of the things the guy running it did was at the end of the course, which went on for quite some time, he said, I want you to all write down something that you really want to do for yourselves uh, that you haven't done or haven't had time to do. And what I wrote down was write a novel. And that was back in 1999. And that's when I started the next day. I started writing my first novel, Nowhere Man. Some would argue that with a background like yours, so it's law and business, and talk to me about that, um, about that part of the career. But one would argue that it's left brain, right brain, right? And if you, because it's it's unusual, I think, for people to come from that background and to write fiction, because usually it's the, I, I know lawyers have written fiction, but, you know, in terms of people that have had stellar careers in, in the money market, um, that's more unusual. Uh, talk to me about that part of your career. I started off being a, uh, a lawyer. I, I went to law school aiming to be a poverty lawyer, which was very new back in those days. And I spent some of the time in my early years working part-time at the Redfern Legal Centre mm-hmm. um, as a volunteer. But I, I got seduced by corporate law. Uh, And I thought, well, maybe I can do good by doing that. Uh, And I spent a long time, 17 years uh, doing that. I was a partner in two major law firms. I then became an investment banker and did that for another 15 years or so. And it was while I was being an investment banker that I turned my mind to writing fiction. And I blame, not only do I blame that course I mentioned, I blame my wife because she's been a real role model for me. She she had been, as a hobby, sculpting, and she won some prizes and then said one day, you know, maybe I should go. At that stage, she was uh, in the IT industry. Uh, She said, maybe I should go to art school and do a Bachelor of Fine Arts. So she applied to the National Art School here in Sydney. She got in. Uh, And she thought it would be a part-time course, but it was a full-time course. And then we had the dilemma about, you know, what to do uh, with our kids because our daughter was uh, just about to go into year 12, our son into year 10, and it wasn't going to really work. So I said, how about I take six months off and I can work on writing this novel You can go to art school. I can look after the kids while they've got their big exams going on and it'll be hunky-dory. So we did that and it was great. I loved it. it How easy was it to take six months off? And like being an investment banker, I can't imagine that would have been easy. Well, it was kind of easier than I thought. I hadn't had a holiday for probably two years before that. And the kind of work style we had back in those days was you kind of work seven days a week and Mm -hmm. all hours and all of that kind of thing. And I was pretty exhausted, so I was keen to have a break. And I went to see 
my boss and said, hey, what do you think about me taking off six months to write a novel? And he said, that's a great idea. Go do it. Mm. Uh, and then I thought, oh, my God, he doesn't love me. Mm. He wants me to go, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, at the end of the six months, I'd written a lot of the novel and I went back to work. Uh, I hadn't finished it. And then three years later when my son was doing the HSC, I took six months off again. And uh, those two pieces of six months were some of the best times in my life because not only did I get the pleasure of like intense writing that I'd never had before, I had enormous delight in being at home for the kids, driving them to school, picking them up, making dinner for when uh, my wife Jenny came home from art school. It was fantastic. It was really, really fantastic. And then um, in 2006, I had an idea to kind of really zoom up the writing. I hadn't been published at that stage. And, and had thought, you tried to be published at that stage? Yeah, I had. I got very, very close. I got very, very close with an international publisher at that point. I had an agent in New York who was doing all that for me. And I was going to take another six months off. And I said to my wife, you know, this is really unfair to the bank I was working for. Maybe I should just quit like she did, mm. which is why I said she's my role model. And she said, go for it. So I did. And I devoted myself kind of half-time to writing and half-time to business. You know, I sit on a number of corporate boards and so on. So so um, talk to me about the thinking, like when you're writing versus when you're working as a lawyer or in the money market. And, you know, they are two different parts of the brains. Well, that's what people tell us. Um, I've never worked in the money market or been a lawyer. But tell me about the difference there for you. Well, for me, there isn't a lot of difference, actually. Mm. So the way I think about it myself is if I'm advising, back when I was an advisor, a legal advisor or an investment banking advisor, or even now sitting on a corporate board, uh, if I'm looking at a situation or advising a client, you're thinking about the what-ifs. You're always thinking about the what-ifs. You know, you think about you go to a lawyer to get a contract drafted, and the lawyer's going, but what if this happens? And what if that happens? And you've got to think about it all. And that's what I that's what I think crime and thriller writers do. They're thinking about the what ifs. It's just that the what ifs really stretch reality. Uh, but they have to be close enough in fiction to reality so that it remains believable, you know. And, I mean, who was it? Mark Twain who said. Truth is stranger than fiction, but fiction has to make sense, mm. and it does. Um, so I kind of think it's this for me anyway. It's the same part of the brain. It's just that it works differently or a little bit further into the future. You know, some examples of where that gets you into trouble, or not trouble, but fun. Maybe I don't know. In my first novel, all my novels have been set in the immediate future. So, like today but just it hasn't happened yet, you know. Uh, and in my first novel, I wanted a catastrophe. And when I was initially writing it back in the year 2000 and 2001, the catastrophe that I imagined was the collapse of the World Trade Centres, which hadn't happened. Mm. And when it did happen, uh, I had to change it. And a few years later when I was still writing the damn thing, uh, what I imagined was a global financial crisis, which hadn't yet happened. Now, the one that right. did happen 
was way worse than the one that I thought up. I thought that I had imagined something that was possible but crazy. The one that did happen was unbelievably crazy, far worse than I ever imagined. So you're also a clairvoyant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, you know, in my second book, uh, if you go back, you mentioned Born to Run. In Born to Run, which is about the first female US president, and mine is Hispanic, the outgoing president, and this book was published in 2011, the outgoing president was someone called Joe Biden. So that's not bad, you know. And then the the later books had similar things that with history became coincidences. So I don't know whether Double Deal will have anything like that. Given what happens in the book, I hope not. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It's interesting to me when people like yourself come into publishing, and we'll talk about how you came into publishing. But a few years back now, I was invited. I had a friend who's in the legal industry, a a lawyer, a solicitor. I never know what they call them in this country. But anyway, and I went to this birthday lunch and there were 15 people and they were all solicitors. And I thought, oh, gosh, I'm so the odd one out, right? I really felt uncomfortable and I was nervous and Then when I was introduced, and people never really can get their head around what I do because it is quite unusual and so people just say I'm a publisher, which I'm not, but then all of a sudden I became the most interesting person to all these people in the room. And what I realised is all of them want to do something creative and everybody was picking my brain about how to get published and it was really quite interesting. It was almost every single one of them. It doesn't surprise me. Why? It doesn't surprise me because I think most people are looking for something within them that hasn't yet happened yet. You know, we're all aspirational in one way or another and lots of people want to paint, they want to write, they have this uh, welling up of an idea that they want to be creative, that they think their day-to-day job is drudgery, etc. Well, in my case, I never thought of my day-to-day job as drudgery. I love my day-to-day job. Very lucky, I guess. Mm. Uh, you know, and um, I think if you can find a job that you love, which you have and which I have, you're probably among the luckiest people mm. in the world. But not everybody's like that. So they're always on the hunt for something that they might do that brings out that creative side. One thing that's great about books and writing is that you're creating something out of nothing. 
it just doesn't exist until it's actually published. Hmm. And you don't need much to pull it together, you know, in terms of materials. Okay, tell me about when I think of you, I think about that Razor commercial. I think it was Remington or something. You know, you loved books and reading so much you bought the company. Um, (laughs) Tell me your path to publishing. And is that indeed how it happened? Is that why you set up a publishing house? No, it's not. Um, I started off in publishing in 1974 when I was at university. And back then I was a PINKO student politician and it happened, this was at University of New South Wales in Sydney, and it happened that the Students' Union, which I was president of, owned half of New South Wales University Press. The other half was owned by the university. Right, And because I was the president, I was on the board. And I knew nothing about publishing other than publishing the student newspaper, which I was also the kind of um, nominal publisher of. And through that, when I first got sued for defamation, that freaked the hell out of me. Tell me about that. Uh, Well, Tharanka, which was the student newspaper back then, published an article about a student and a photograph of her that that likened her to a jackbooted Nazi. Oh. It, it was terrible mm. and it should never have been published. And she okay. sued. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got served by the process server from the law firm. You know, I'm a 21-year-old mm. student, 20, yeah, 21-year-old student who's a student politician, and it really, really freaked me out. So we oh, immediately, yeah. <laughs> you know, we immediately went to the lawyers and um, we got the lawyer who had acted for Richard Walsh and Richard Neville in the famous Oz trials to represent us. He was one of these crusty old guys who, you know, smoked cigars and wore a hat. The hat was on a pig in his room. Anyway, he defended us. Uh, He said, actually, it's indefensible, so we should settle. And we settled for, and I remember the number, uh, because it was huge at the time. Remember, I was a student. Mm. It was $412 plus an apology. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, but that was 1974. Anyway, so that was my first negative of being a publisher, my first learning. And then on the board of UNSW Press, uh, the press was going broke at the time. And back then it was principally publishing lecture notes and some of the non-fiction that the academics were doing. So the university wanted to close it. Uh, the vice-chancellor at the time said, you know, we don't have the money, we're going to close it down. Being a joint venture, it's too hard, working with the students, et cetera, et cetera. So I put a deal to them, which was we would give them our half for free, provided they guaranteed that UNSW Press would have the financing and independence to carry on and grow, which they agreed to. And so UNSW Press then set on a path where it became, as it is now, as New South Press, Mm. a fabulous um, independent university publisher. And then back in the mid-'90s when I was an investment banker, uh, the then chairman of UNSW Press asked me to come back on the board. Oh, so right. it's like reliving yeah. my past. So I went back on the board and I was there for quite a number of years and learned a lot about real publishing. 
um, at that time. And I loved that. That was fantastic. And then in 2008, my daughter, who was still living at home at the time uh, and had been doing strategy work for some not-for-profits and so on, came to the family kitchen table and said, I've got this idea. What if we were to set up a company that married our interests, the family interests in uh, the arts, writing in particular, business and philanthropy? And my wife and I and someone said, well, keep talking, what, you know, what, what's your idea? And she said, well, you know, a publishing business that is focused on discovering and nurturing new talent because this was 2008, so in the middle of the global financial crisis and a lot of publishers were um, downsizing, And retailers were in trouble. Retailers were in trouble. The whole industry was a debacle. Yeah. Yeah. And new authors were finding it extraordinarily difficult to get published. Uh, So Ali's, Ali, my daughter, Alison Green, her idea was we set up this thing, we, this company, we, we go out and hunt for new authors in the publishing industry. You know, they talk about a slush pile. Uh, that authors send their manuscripts unsolicited into publishers and they get thrown on the top of the slush pile and are lucky if someone ever looks at them. We decided that philosophically we would have a diamond mine, not a slush pile, and that we would go hunting for the gems. And we found lots of gems over the, what is it now, 11, 12 years that we've been going and so from our, strength to strength, yeah. Yeah, strength to strength. And at the moment, uh, Nielsen says Pantera is the fastest growing small publisher in the country, which is mm. wonderful. Yeah, congratulations. Um, thank you. So it's really, really exciting and mm. we love it. And we've got the Pantera Press Foundation, which supports a bunch of literacy programs around the country. Um, the Story Factory is one of our current partners. And a great outfit. Great outfit. We were working with the Smith family for a number of years with their Let's Read program Mm -hmm. that took reading skills to mothers in disadvantaged communities to help them work out how to read to their kids. Many of the parents couldn't read. Mm -hmm. So it was a great program. So we've done all of that. Uh, The foundation supports writers' festivals, readers' festivals. Um, And so the idea of Pantera Press is that whatever money we make gets put back into either finding new authors, developing new talent, or these kind of literacy projects. So, uh, you know, we love it. We just love it. And, and so was that when you were first published? Was yes. One of, yeah. Yes. So, so I was, my agent was negotiating for me with a publisher at the time, and then we were signing our first author. And Who was your first author? A lovely gorgeous guy, young man, Robin Baker, who at the time, he was 27, he was a funeral director in Perth, and he wrote a brilliant novel which didn't sell anywhere near as well as it should have, called Killing Richard Dawson. Uh, And we published that in 2010. But he said to me when we were signing him, so Pantera's publishing your book too? And I stopped because... It wasn't going to be. And I looked at Ali and said, of course. <laughs> you know what I mean? How could I invite 
someone else to be published by us if I wasn't going to trust our company to publish my own work. So that's how that happened. And then the agent stopped talking to the other people and then we went from there. Mm. And so when you own a company and you're being published, how does the editorial process work? Oh, was that was that no, yeah they are tough so the rules the rules are that john gets the toughest editing mm-hmm. he gets no benefits when we're having team meetings and we talk about the books when they talk about my books i leave the room or i leave the zoom as we do now and um you know i have a passion for editing. I've edited a number of the books that we've published in the past. And one of the best books I ever read was about one of the legendary editors from New York, Maxwell Perkins, and how he edited some of the greats uh, over the years. And so for us and for me, the editing process is crucial. So often readers look at a book, read a book, and they think, isn't that author a genius? But actually, as you would know, the book is a partnership, a collaboration between the author, the editor, the publisher, and the reader. Mm. Because what the reader takes in from the book is they're taking the black and white words, but they're putting their imagination in it to create the scenes and the characters and so on. But I don't think there would be any book that wouldn't be improved by a publisher and an editor. Well, I even say this, you know, the difference between self-publishing and publishing is the expertise, you know. Correct. That's just the difference. Hey, listen, we've run out of time, John. So the new book is called uh, Double Deal, a rollicking crime fiction yet again, and uh, in typical John Green style. Congratulations and thank you so much for talking with us today. And thank you very much, Cheryl. I've really enjoyed it. All the best. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.